Hi friends, I'm Tierney. And I'm Shelby. And we're Dead Dead Drunk. Drunk. This is a really exciting episode for us because I feel like we're becoming um, adults. <laughs> this, this, this is the moment. This is the moment. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we uh, maybe adults is not the right word, but like I feel like this is a professional move for us, and I'm excited to be real podcasters. Yeah, this is a big one, you guys, and you've heard us mention this name a bunch of other times, probably way out of context, and you didn't know what was happening, but. Or maybe you did, and you're just as excited to hear about this as we are to talk about it. I know. Um, Do you want to give the special announcement? Sure. Okay. This is just the beginning, drunkies. Dun, dun, dun. We're going to tell you the case that got Israel Keys caught, and then we're going to dig even deeper, hoping... To unlock Israel Keys. Yes. I feel like we've said that so many times. And we're like, copyright, don't take it. This is ours. This is, I'm like hoping that nobody else has done this podcast. I thought it was so good. I did, in my research, there was definitely an article headline that was like unlocking the mystery behind. And I was like, oh, that's really close. But it's mm. close, but not as cute. Not as cute as ours. Unlocking Israel Keys. And we'll yes. get into what all of that means at the end of the case but it means that we'll have a bunch more episodes on israel keys in our patreon yeah or on our on our pat on or in on i don't know what is patreon? Long I- <laughs> on long island or in long island <laughs> you tell us in the comments below <laughs> um but yeah so we're gonna have 11 episodes on our patreon and as you're listening to this the second episode is already up on our Patreon. So if you like what you hear here, you can go become a patron. It's $5 for the regular tier where you'll get all these episodes. If you want to be an extra patron, you'll get a little bit extra stuff. Um, that's $10 a month, but $5 will get you all of the episodes of Unlocking Israel Keys as they come out once a month. So if you love this, go listen because episode two is already up. It's going to be a lot of fun. We don't know what we're going to uncover or unlock. We don't know if we'll find anything. But the goal is to figure some of this out. Yeah, we have our tinfoil hats on and we are <laughs> conspir- conspiring. Why could I not think of what that word was? Conspiring? <laughs> Conspiratating? <laughs> yeah, we're, Tierney we're got one box of Hunt a Killer and now we think we can do it. So oh, I know. <laughs> Here we go. Hunt Killer is fun. Not sponsored, but Hunt Killer, if you're listening. Yeah, hit us up. We're open. We're open to it. <laughs> anyway, so for this drink, we are going off of Israel Keys's preferred alcohol, which is wild turkey. And what you're going to do is pour that into a shot glass, pour half a can of beer into a pint glass, and then drop that shot glass into that beer and chug that whole thing as many times as you need to throughout this entire thing so you can feel safe. <laughs> I will never feel safe after this. <laughs> no, it's it's pretty chilling, this case. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to... I've never tried it before. <laughs> and we Full have disclosure. a live tasting right now. Yeah. Oh, I can't we'll wait to watch your reaction. All right. You want to do... You ready for the case? Our- Drink up, dead drunkies. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> chug, 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 chug. We like to drink with Shelby. Shelby is our mate. And when we drink with Shelby, she gets it down in eight, seven, six, five, four. Oh. <laughs> Was it good? Wasn't the worst thing I've ever tasted. <laughs> <laughs> it could be better. Mm. I would suggest using... Something other than wild turkey. <laughs> it's what Israel Keys would have done. Yeah, Israel Keys would have drank a whole bottle of wild turkey. But if you have taste, then you might want to <laughs> try <laughs> Taconic Distillery's maple bourbon. I really oh, like yeah. them. I still get We're the regular n- <laughs> Taconic bourbon, like the Duchess one or something. 
Oh, yeah. I still have one. I keep it on the top shelf so that I drink it last. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like the only one I drink right now. So <laughs> it's it's dwindling. That's my second bottle. Well, I wrote up a whole intro paragraph to this that like I didn't I don't like need to read now. You can still read it. Okay. If you're one of our loyal dead drunkies, then you for sure heard this name before. If you're new to the podcast, then welcome and get ready for a story that we've waited too long to cover. This case has been talked about by pretty much all of the other podcasts we listen to, and recently, the FBI even released some new pieces of information to the public surrounding the case of Israel Keys. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Thanks. That was in my brain, but I really needed you to put it (laughs) into reality. Anytime, anytime. So our story begins with Samantha Koenig, who was born in Anchorage, Alaska on August 30th, 1993. She loved animals, her friends, fishing with her papa, playing and writing music, writing poetry, camping, and playing Call of Duty with her boyfriend, Dwayne. Yeah, she was a Virgo, so that makes sense. (laughs) Does it? I don't don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Every time somebody brings up Zodiacs, I'm just like, are you the Zodiac killer? It is me. Samantha attended West High School and Avail High School, but she wasn't content to just be a student. Samantha worked at Subway and House of Harley, which I don't know what it is, but it means Har- it's like Harley Davidson. House of Harley. Oh. So, okay. I don't know. It sounds really cool. I thought it was like House of Blues or like Hard Rock Cafe, but with Harleys, but I'm probably wrong. So she worked at Subway and House of Harley, but she had longed to work as a barista. It was a dream, I guess. 18-year-old Samantha finally got the chance at the job she wanted and had just begun working as a barista at the Common Grounds coffee stand on Tudor Road in early 2012. Unfortunately, on February 1st, 2012, Samantha's career plans were cut short. On the night of February 1st, 2012, while Samantha was working late, A man wearing a ski mask and hood approached the stand and ordered an Americano coffee just before closing time. Samantha made the coffee and handed it to the man, but instead of pulling out a wallet to pay for his order, the man pulled out a twenty-two caliber gun. No! The man in the ski mask initially demanded money from the register, which Samantha gave willingly. Then the man forced his way inside the coffee stand and tied Samantha's hands with zip ties. He asked her where her car was, but when she told him that she didn't actually have a vehicle, the man instead chose to walk Samantha out of the coffee stand at gunpoint, heading toward Tudor Road. At this point, Samantha broke away from the man and attempted to make a break for it. Unfortunately, the man managed to catch up to her and tackled Samantha to the ground. Now, this assailant made sure to keep a hold on her with one arm while keeping the gun pointed at her body with the other hand. I hate when it's like, she got away, but then, like, it's like, I had some hope, but then she didn't get away. This is why more people should probably run. I don't run, but, like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't run at all. I really don't run, but (laughs) I feel like if I could, I might be able to get away. Although I would throw anything and everything that I found. A rock, a stick, a kid. I would throw somebody in between me and that person. (laughs) In an effort to get her to cooperate, the man told her that the gun had very quiet ammo and that she shouldn't do anything to make him kill her. Samantha, believing that cooperation was her best chance at survival, stopped fighting the man. They walked across Tudor Road together to the parking lot between the IHOP restaurant and Dairy Queen. The man walked Samantha to a Chevy Silverado that was parked there. He then bound her in the truck and drove away. The man drove Samantha around town all the while explaining to her that this was a kidnapping for ransom. Samantha immediately told the man that her family didn't have that much money and that he wasn't likely to get very much money out of this, which is what I would say to anybody because it's true. You would get like a a couch. (laughs) A couch. And and all of my student debt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good luck with my loans, bitch. The man told her that her family would seek help from the public to come up for the money and managed to convince her that if she cooperated, she would be returned home safely. Sometime during the drive, it came out that Samantha did not have her cell phone, which was very important to his whole kidnapping plot. 
So he drove them back to common ground and retrieved the cell phone from inside the coffee stand. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's <sighs> that's insane. That's like going back. Like, you don't return to the scene of the crime. That's like <laughs> He did. Yeah. Then the man drove to another part of town where he used Samantha's phone to send two separate text messages. The first message was to Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, and the second was to the owner of the Common Grounds coffee stand. According to a family friend, Michelle Tasker, the message to her boss said something along the lines of, I'm going on vacation, I'm tired, which was out of character for Samantha. I'm tired? Yeah. It, so- it sounds out of character for anybody. I'm going on vacation, I'm tired. Yeah, at least be like, Oh, I, I totally forgot to tell you my family's taking a vacation. I'm so sorry for not giving you notice. You know, like, I'm going on vacation. I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no one's believing that. Also, she just started the coffee stand. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was her lifelong dream, apparently. <laughs> I don't know if I would say lifelong, but. Didn't you say that she. It, it, didn't you it say said that? that in the obituary that she longed to be a barista. Okay. I don't. Yeah. I don't believe that it was her end goal, but <laughs> I just want to be a barista. I think the idea is that she. It sounds to me like she really liked people and engaging with people, and that's essentially your job as a barista. As somebody who worked at Dunkin' Donuts for a couple <laughs> of years, um, yeah, you do have to engage with people, and you have to be like really good at it. So, <laughs> what are you doing? My Alexis. <laughs> I I knew that was what, but. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I got to tell you, one Boilermaker, that might be enough. The message to her boyfriend read, hey, I'm spending a couple of days with friends. Let me dad know. Let me dad know. I'm from Ireland and you got to let me dad know. <laughs> that time going to spend a couple of days with me and mates. That was bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Let's I really enjoyed it. <laughs> but as you immediately know that something's wrong, so did Samantha's close friends and family. <laughs> but no one knew for sure what had happened until law enforcement reviewed the security camera footage from the coffee stand. And that's when they saw what had actually happened. What I just described to you, an abduction. They saw all of it on the security camera footage. Samantha putting her hands up as he demanded money and then him coming in and taking Samantha and him coming back to get the phone. So I know that we haven't covered Israel Keys yet and it will will dive into him a little bit more as we go through our series. Subscribe to our Patreon if you haven't already. Um, <laughs> but... It sounds very unlike him to leave evidence behind like that. Like, that seems very careless of him. Yeah. There's a lot of... There's a lot in this one. But this is the one that got him caught, so maybe he was just getting cocky. Maybe. I have similar feelings to this one as I do to Ted Bundy's last hurrah. So, (laughs) So they wouldn't know what had happened there until they reviewed the security camera footage, which would reveal that it was an abduction. But meanwhile, in the kidnapper's white truck, Samantha revealed that she didn't have her debit card on her. She told him that she shared a bank account with her boyfriend and that the only ATM card was in the truck that they shared. Samantha remained compliant, giving the man the PIN number and telling him where her house was. Still, the man took her into a shed and bound her before turning up the radio and leaving. Then the man drove to Samantha's house and managed to retrieve the ATM card from the truck, but not without being spotted by her boyfriend, Dwayne. Dwayne, who was already on edge after finding that Samantha was not at the coffee stand when he was supposed to go and pick her up after work, and receiving a weird text from her initially, thought that this guy was just a random burglar. He yelled at him to get away from the truck before running into the house to call for help. The man took that opportunity to jump in his own truck and drive away. Dwayne had no way of knowing that he had just come face to face with the man that was holding his girlfriend hostage, Israel Keys. Dun, dun, dun. I know you guys already knew that it was Israel Keys, but I really liked the buildup, so. Yeah. (laughs) 
Israel Keyes was born in Cove, Utah on January 7, 1978. Keyes was the second of 10 children born to Mormon parents, Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes. That right there, you know. Oh, wait. That's the All 10 of them were homeschooled. I don't I don't know if you've had any interactions with homeschooled people, but they don't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when you're homeschooled, you don't get to learn social interaction by being at school with new people. So you don't get that opportunity until maybe college. That's what I'm most scared for now that we're teaching online, because 90 percent of the curriculum in pre-K is supposed to be play based. Mm-hmm. And they're not getting any of it because they're not interacting with each other anymore. So. Yeah. I'm going to be interested to see if it has somehow benefited the family dynamic when we get out of this. Like, yeah, I'm hoping that people are taking the time to spend with their families, but it's still like. I don't know. I feel like having school at school is really important. And like. It might not even happen in fall. We might just be online for like the foreseeable future, but it's kind of scary. Oh, yeah, that's that's kind of crazy. But I mean, if if you put high schoolers in a room and told them to distance or they'd get a disease, they might listen. But four year olds, there's no chance. So. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, even then, it's like. If even if we're in the classroom with each other sitting six feet apart the whole day, like that's not. Right, they can't really play. They can't learn. Yep. Yeah. So, I'm not saying that any of these factors went into him, but probably. (laughs) When Keyes was around four years old, his family moved out of Utah to Colville, Washington, where they lived in a one-room cabin without electricity or running water. So there's 12 of them in there. Yep. While living in Colville... The Keyes' family became friends with their neighbors, the family of Chevy and I feel like it's meant to be Cheyenne or maybe it's Sheen Cahill. Uh, These guys were known racists that were later convicted of three 1996 murders. What are the odds? (laughs) Pretty slim. (laughs) Although in America, it might not be that slim. Yeah, unfortunately. Later in the 1990s, the family moved to Smyrna, Maine, where they got involved in the maple syrup business. One neighbor from Maine remembers Keyes as, quote, a nice, courteous young man. Interesting. Which he was on the outside. And their location and their move to Smyrna, Maine is only backed by a few sources. So I'm not really sure if they lived in Smyrna, Maine or if Keyes lived in Smyrna, Maine, but the Keyes family moved there. Okay, so he was like 18 at the time, right? 17 or 18? Yeah. So maybe he... Well, he was in his late teens in the 90s, and there's no exact year for when they moved to Maine, so... Okay, so his family could have moved to Maine. He could have stayed behind. Exactly. Or he could have, like, gone to visit people back home by himself at this point. Right. He had kind of a travel bug, as you'll see. Yeah. (laughs) According to military records, Keyes enlisted in the U.S. Army in Albany, New York, on July 9th, 1998. Woot woot! Hometown! (laughs) Stay away from me, Israel Keyes! Thank you! (laughs) During his military career, he was stationed at various military bases, including Fort Lewis, which is located 9.1 miles south-southwest of Tacoma, Washington, Fort Hood, located in Killeen, Texas, and even a base in Egypt. Records show that Keyes was awarded the Army Achievement Medal, the Army Service Ribbon, the National Defense Service Medal, the Marksman Badge with Rifle Bar, the Expert Infantryman Badge, and the Air Assault Badge. So he was a pretty decorated soldier by the time he was discharged from Fort Lewis on July 8th, 2001. Yeah, he sounds like a very upstanding citizen. Why was he discharged? It was honorably, so presumably because he just didn't want to do it anymore. Oh, I didn't know if that was allowed or not. I, <laughs> I think if, you know, I didn't really go into this the army discharging thing, but I'm pretty sure that if you've put enough time in, it's okay. They will, like, honorably discharge you? I think so. I don't think that there has to be a medical reason. I think you could have just done your years. 
You know, I'm pretty sure when you enlist, you sign up for a certain number of years. Yeah. Okay. So then he might have just done his years and not wanted to go any further. Hmm. Military discharge is given when a member of the armed forces is released from his or her obligation to serve. Each country's military has different types of discharge. They're generally based on whether the person completed their training and then fully and satisfactorily completed their term of service. So I'm guessing that his term of service just ended and he was honorably discharged. Mm-hmm. Because I know sometimes you'll get honorably discharged like if you get injured or... Yeah, there's you know I mean? no injury in like this hurt? case. No, he okay. was fine. Keyes' former army friends remember the man's quiet demeanor and that he mostly kept to himself. On the weekends, however, Keyes was known to drink heavily, at times even finishing entire bottles of his favorite drink, wild turkey bourbon. There we go, folks. Take a drink, drunkies. <laughs> <laughs> Take another Boilermaker, dead drunkies. Or don't. I know. It, it's pretty. Shelby. <laughs> <laughs> His army friends also noted that Keyes was really into the music group and saying clown posse. And even oh, had several large posters. Of course he was. <laughs> of course he was. Like, when you hear was a fan of insane clown posse, you picture a certain type of person. Like, that is who Israel Keyes was. Yeah, but the picture that you're coming up with in his mind, in your mind, isn't what he looked like. He didn't look yeah, like the kind true. of person that loved ICP. <laughs> that is true. That's true. But if you don't know who they are, um, look them up and then clear or your browser don't. history because I guess the <laughs> yeah. FBI is about to be able to see all of our <laughs> all of our history. But <laughs> clear your browser history. Don't tell a soul that you Googled and see Clown Posse. If you listen to one song, I would suggest Miracles because they marvel at the miracle of magnets. <laughs> That's only one of the miracles that they marvel at. The line goes, magnets, how do they work? No, it doesn't. Yeah, no, yeah, it does. Magnets, bitch. That's, no, <laughs> that's a real song, though. That's Jesse, but. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that was Jesse Pinkman. Did I sound like him? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Gatorade me, bitch. Anyway, yeah, he's liked ICP. In 2007, after several years of having been out of the military, Keyes started his own construction business in Alaska. Keyes Construction. There, he worked as the owner, a handyman, contractor, and construction worker. So it was just him? No, there were a lot of people working under him, but a lot of people in Alaska would use him as a handyman or a contractor and construction worker, even district attorneys, lawyers, important people. Oh, so he was pretty successful then. Oh, yeah. Okay. After the Anchorage Police Department went over the security camera footage from the coffee stand and the news spread that Samantha was, in fact, abducted, Samantha's family went to the public for help. James Koenig went on KTVA 11 News, known as the Voice of Alaska, which I really liked, to beg for his daughter's safe return. His pleas went unheard. And as time went on, with no sign of Samantha, fear began to spread through the Alaskan community as they all wondered which of their neighbors could be capable of something like this. It's a pretty, I mean, there's a lot of people in Alaska, but it's still a pretty small population compared to the rest of us. Yeah. I bet Alaska's opening businesses. (laughs) Yeah, each town is pretty socially distanced from the other towns, so they're probably really good. The Anchorage Police Department started by looking at those close to Samantha, meaning her friends, family, and boyfriend. That's when the FBI decided to join the case. Now, with special agents Catherine Nelson and Jolene Godin on the case, they were able to easily rule out Samantha's family and her boyfriend. Jolene, 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 Jolene. I was hoping you'd do that, but I'm also very (laughs) excited that there are two women special agents on this case. Oh, yeah, I love that. Special Agent Nelson told Peter Van Sant of CBS News' 48 Hours, there was no obvious lead in this case, and it posed so many barriers for us in the beginning as to where to start looking for her. Makes sense. Ten days went by with no sign of Samantha, but her family wasn't ready to give up the search. They held a vigil and hundreds of people showed up, 
Friends and family handed out flyers to the hundreds in the crowd, asking them to hand them out everywhere they can with the hope that someone, somewhere, knew something and would call him with the information. Michelle Tasker told the crowd, We just need some sort of... It's that one lead, that one tip that's going to bring her home. Unfortunately, the flyers didn't turn up any new leads, and the family was forced to wait in agony for any answer as to where Samantha was. Then, finally... Three weeks after her disappearance, law enforcement received their first break in the case. Quote, That's when the text came in, Michelle Tasker told 48 Hours. On February 24th, 2012, a text was sent to Dwayne's phone from Samantha's cell phone. That text read, quote, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? I just got chills. Immediately, Samantha's family and loved ones took off for Connor Park, a local dog park. On the bulletin board, they found a flyer for a missing dog named Albert, and underneath that was a plastic bag with what Michelle Tasker says, quote, looked like a clipping and a photograph in it. Upon discovering the bag, they called the police. According to Good. Special Agent Godin, quote, that note contained a picture of Samantha and... A long typed out message that talked about putting $30,000 into Samantha's bank account. End quote. I never say end quote. Neither but do I. I. Like, <laughs> but I feel like everybody knows where I'm ending. Yeah, right? If if you don't, let me know. That person just, end quote. I'm sorry. That person just <laughs> wrote the rest of the episode. <laughs> the whole thing is a quote. <laughs> the photo mentioned here is a photograph that shows Samantha holding up a newspaper. A newspaper from February 13th. Special Agent Godin told 48 Hours, quote, I believe it was dated February 13th, so well after Samantha's abduction. So the hope, of course, is that Samantha is alive. Right. Samantha's dad immediately deposited what he had into her bank account, which was $5,000. And several hours later, an ATM withdrawal for $500 is made using Samantha's debit card right in Anchorage. Wow. The also security 500 is 500 is usually the um like the limit that you can take out for a day at an ATM, right? I think so. Okay. The security camera footage clearly shows a man, but it's very hard to make out any of his features. Special agent Godin noted, quote, "He has a covering over his face, dark clothing, he has gloves on his hands, and so it's there's very little you can tell." Investigators rushed to the ATM, but they were too late, missing their suspect by mere minutes. I hate that shit. I know. The very next day, another $500 was withdrawn from another ATM in Alaska, but authorities again missed their man. I wish there was a way that they could, like, track the card. Do you know what I mean? Without it being used. Oh, like track the location of the card, yeah. like the cell phone? Yeah. Yeah. What about they couldn't track her cell phone at this point? No. Why not? In 2012, you couldn't track cell phones? No, it's just, um, it's not on. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Um, he's removed the battery. I gotcha. Yeah. One week later, another withdrawal for $400 is made. But this time, it's at an ATM in Wilcox, Arizona. Nearly 4,000 miles away from Alaska. Oh, my God. He got there fast. Mm-hmm. Then just a short time later, another withdrawal is made in Lordsburg, New Mexico, this time for $80. Interesting that he would do 80 Yeah, it's an odd change. A little later, another withdrawal is made for $480 in Humble, Texas, and then the same amount from an ATM in Shepherd, Texas. So he's moving all around. Well, he's kind of moving in one direction. And the FBI kind of immediately figured out that he's moving east. Right. Makes sense. But also at this point, he's made a very crucial mistake. In the photo from the ATM withdrawal in Arizona, a white Ford Focus can clearly be seen in the background. <gasps> the FBI put that information out to law enforcement officers across the entire region where the withdrawals occurred and hoped that someone would spot their suspect. Then, on March 13th, a Texas state trooper reported a vehicle matching that description in a local hotel parking lot. Oh, shit. 
A little later, a man came out of the hotel, got in the Ford Focus, and began to drive away. <gasps> the trooper followed, waiting for a reason to pull the car over. And when the car began speeding, the trooper had his probable cause. Oh, my God. I just got chills. Get him. Get him. <laughs> the driver presented him with an ID for 34-year-old Israel Keys. Dun, dun, dun. It's like we keep revealing the same information. <laughs> I know. And it was Israel Keys. We solved yes, it, you guys. Know. It was Israel Keys. We know. <laughs> Although Keys wasn't anywhere on law enforcement's radar, the FBI are sure that they have the man that took Samantha. A search of the vehicle revealed that Keys was traveling with Samantha's ID, her debit card, cell phone, rolls of cash and rubber bands, a piece of gray t-shirt cut out to make a face mask, a highlighted map with routes through California, Arizona, and New Mexico, and a gun. All right. Monique Dahl, the lead Anchorage police investigator on the case, and her partner, Jeff Bell, set out for Texas to get their chance at cracking Israel Keys. Also, the lead investigator is also a woman. It's like vaginas solved this whole case. It's amazing. I love vaginas. (laughs) No, I don't. Wait, what? (laughs) Dahl reportedly showed Keys the ransom note, and in her own words, quote, I told him that the first couple times that I read the ransom, I thought that whoever wrote the note was a monster, and the more I read it, it must have been a hundred times, the more I came to understand that monsters aren't born, but are created, and that this person had a story to tell. According to Dahl, Keyes' response was a firm, I can't help you. (laughs) Oh, I think you can, sir. I think you can help me. (laughs) Two weeks later, Keyes is extradited to Anchorage, Alaska for further questioning. Initially, investigators didn't really know what they had with him. They weren't sure if he was the mastermind behind the entire abduction and ransom plot or if he was just someone who was using a credit card he happened to find. So both the Anchorage police detectives and the FBI agents on the case dove into the man's history to learn everything there was to know about Israel Keys. Keys only had a DUI on his record, but and no other history of violent crimes or sexual offenses. Special Agent Godin stated, quote, He's a 34-year-old man from Alaska who has a construction business, a small kind of quiet life. At least that's what it looked like on the outside. Keyes lived in a house in a residential neighborhood with his girlfriend and his 10-year-old daughter from a previous relationship. Neighbors noted that he didn't really stand out except for the fact that he was a very hardworking man. Still, investigators had a question that still needed an answer. So Frank Russo, the Anchorage assistant U.S. attorney, remembers confronting him with that question. Where is Samantha? But before he would tell investigators anything, Keyes began what would become a pattern of bargaining for specific things by withholding information. His first request was one for an Americano coffee from Starbucks, a Snickers bar, and a particular kind of cigar. Once Keyes had what he wanted, he agreed to tell them all about what happened to Samantha. According to lead investigator Dahl, Keyes then told another investigator to give Dahl a message. Quote, tell her she's got her monster. That's a a badass quote. (laughs) I loved that. I know. But it's really terrifying. So, this is what happened. On February 1st, 2012, the day Samantha was abducted, Keyes took her to a small shed on the residential property where he lived with his girlfriend and daughter. After he retrieved her debit card and checked it at an ATM machine, Keyes returned to the shed. Then he sexually assaulted Samantha before strangling her to death. Did he have to? Like, did he have to, you know? Probably not. But I don't know what was going on with his brain. Leaving her in the shed, Keyes then left to pack for his pre-planned two-week cruise in the Gulf of Mexico with his family. What an asshole. They left early on the morning of February 2nd for New Orleans and didn't return until February 17th. Due to the extreme cold of the Alaskan winter, Samantha's body was perfectly preserved when he returned. So Keyes began preparing the ransom note for the Koenig family. So she was dead the whole time? Yeah, she was dead from the beginning. Keyes retrieved Samantha's body from the shed, applied makeup to her face, and sewed her eyes open with some fishing line to make it look like she was alive. What a psychopath. Then he took a picture of her with a four-day-old issue of the Anchorage Daily News alongside her bound, posed corpse. 
Keyes made a photocopy of the picture and, using a manual typewriter he had purchased, he typed a ransom demand on the back. Over the following days, Keyes dismembered Samantha's body before driving out to Matanuska Lake. There, he built an ice shanty, typically used when ice fishing, which protected him from any prying eyes as he cut a hole in the ice and dumped her body parts into the freezing lake as he fished. Wait. What? So he's sitting there ice fishing and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, here's her arm. Yeah, he was multitasking. Oh, my God. Did he catch anything? Frank Russo recalls questioning him about that. Quote, I remember asking him, did you catch any fish? And he said, yeah, I caught fish. And I said, well, what did you do with the fish? And he said, well, I took them home and ate them. And for me, that just turned my stomach. That's what Frank Russo said. Yeah. Yeah. Also in this confession, Keyes explained that he had selected the Common Grounds coffee stand prior to the night of the abduction purely because it was open later than the other coffee stands. He scoped out every coffee stand in Anchorage, Alaska and picked Common Grounds purely because it was open later than the other ones. Keyes had never met Samantha Koenig before the night of February 1st, 2012. Samantha had just been at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's like the scariest part of Israel Keys to me because it was almost just like anybody could be his next victim. It didn't matter as long as they were. That is the scariest part of Keys is that it doesn't matter who you are. If you're in his vicinity, you could be his next target. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't. I know we haven't covered BTK either, but BTK explains that there's all this stalking and choosing and there's a bunch of phases that you go through as a serial killer, choosing your your victim and then stalking them. And then Keyes doesn't do that. No. Despite their hopes, the Koenig family never got Samantha back alive. With the help of a diving team, though, her body was recovered from Matanuska Lake after a 10 hour search and her family was able to put her remains to rest. Samantha was cremated at sunrise on Easter Sunday, April 8th, 2012. They asked her loved ones to, quote, keep Samantha in your thoughts by sharing a smile and a laugh with those you encounter. So. She sounds like she was just such a bright girl. It does. It sounds like she was just a really happy young girl with a lot of hopes and didn't deserve this. You can't tell, but I'm fine. <laughs> It quickly became clear to everyone that spoke with Keyes that they had a depraved killer on their hands, and this was most likely not his first murder. Monique Dahl considered Keyes something of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personality, although they only knew Mr. Hyde. Mm. Keyes actually warned investigators that he was not at all what he seemed. In one FBI interview, Keyes says, quote, There is no one who knows me or who has ever known me. Who knows anything about me, really? They're going to tell you something that does not line up with anything I tell you because I'm two different people, basically. What? Yeah. What does that even mean? Well, when Russo asked him how long he had been two different people, he laughed and said, a long time, 14 years. Damn, so that would put us in what? 19... 1998? When he was 20? Okay. To Russo, that meant that Israel Keyes had been a serial killer for 14 years. Keyes even teased his interrogators with details of other murders, leading them to believe that more of his victims were out there waiting to be discovered. Full body chills, I can't. Finally, I can't. <laughs> finally, Keyes agreed to tell investigators everything. In his own words, quote, every single gory detail you want. In exchange, he wanted one thing. An execution date. According to Frank Russo, Keyes said, quote, I want to promise that I'll get the death penalty. If you do that, I'll tell you about all the people I killed. What we said is the more murders you give us, the more likely it is that they're going to want to impose the death penalty on you. So that I mean, was... that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Without a guarantee, however... Keyes was reluctant to tell the investigators anything. Luckily, Assistant U.S. Attorney Kevin Feldes 
knew just what to say to get him to open up. Feldis and Russo would offer him candy bars, cigars, or even grant him some time on the internet to get information out of Keys. Initially, he had agreed to tell them all about the details of Samantha's murder if they kept everything out of the press, reportedly, so that his young daughter would never hear about it. I think he didn't want her to hear about the sexual assault portions of things. That makes sense. I think I think that's it, though. Because obviously she's learned that he's a serial killer. Yeah. Eventually, Keyes relinquished that desire, stating in a video interview from July 26, 2012, quote, even my own family assumes I did it, so... <laughs> then he laughs. Oh my god. Feldis, Russo, and Special Agent Godin spent countless hours interviewing Keyes, and in some ways, bonding with him in order to gain his trust. The strategy worked, and Keyes voluntarily granted two dozen interviews to various investigators over the seven months after his arrest. It really paid off for investigators when they finally managed to get Keyes to talk to them about his other murders. In one of his interviews with Keyes, Feldis said, quote, So give me something to work with. Hold a bunch of your cards back, but give me a card. Keyes gave in and told him, All right, I'll give you two bodies and a name. I know. <laughs> I, d- I didn't know what to say, but my face was like, Oh my God. <laughs> Tierney's eyes got really, really wide. <laughs> because it's like a puzzle. This guy is a human puzzle. Mm-hmm. I love puzzles, but I don't love Israel Keys. The names he gave were Bill and Lorraine Courier, a married couple who lived more than 4,000 miles from Anchorage in Vermont. In Vermont? Yeah. What what was he doing in Vermont? Well, he had kind of a travel bug. All right. (laughs) The FBI immediately set their intel guys on the search for the couple, and they learned that Bill and Lorraine were missing and have been for quite some time. According to Special Agent Godin, quote, Bill and Lorraine Courier are a couple that lived in Essex, Vermont. Nothing stands out really about them. They were just kind of living their life. So again, it was like a crime again, of opportunity. That's the most terrifying thing about Keys. You're just living your life and he just happens to come upon you. And it's not just young girls. Right. He doesn't it care who be you anyone. Are. Well, he did have some stipulations. If if you had children with you, he wasn't. Oh, he wasn't nice going to do guy. it. I mean, that that doesn't absolve him. No, no, I know. The couriers vanished one night in June 2011, bewildering their families beyond belief. Their case went cold for a year until Keyes started talking. Keyes told investigators that he flew into Chicago and then drove east, fully intending to commit a murder on this trip. He just didn't know his victims yet. Keyes stayed at a hotel in Essex, Vermont, and during his stay... He dug up a bucket that he had buried there a few years earlier. This is what Keyes liked to call his kill cache, which was a standard orange bucket from Home Depot that was filled with the tools of the trade. Keyes would pre-position these caches all over the United States during his travels, and sometimes he would plan a trip to a specific location simply because he knew he had a kit buried there. Oh my god. The FBI showed 48 Hours the contents of one of Keyes' kill caches that were discovered in the Blake Falls Reservoir in Adirondack Park in Parrishville, New York. No, thank you. Get away from me. <laughs> According to Special Agent Godin, they found, quote, the silencer for the 22. We have a wood stock for a 22, a plastic stock for a 22, a portion of a 22 rifle, and then we have the drum magazine. The kill cache used to murder the couriers has never been found, but Keyes did tell the FBI where they could find a weapon he had used in Vermont. With that weapon, they discovered a silencer that Keyes had actually made himself. Oh my god. Where do you learn how to make a silencer? Is it that simple? I feel like everybody like makes their own homemade silencer with a potato. It's like, no thank you. I think you could probably find it on Google, but I'm guessing Keyes might have known how to make a silencer from his military training. Oh. Is that That's what they teach? You? Is that he, what they teach you in the military? I don't think it's a typical. <laughs> <laughs> it's a typical lesson, but I would imagine if you learn all this stuff about guns and you're not dumb. That's the thing about Keys. He's not dumb. Yeah, he could probably. He probably knew what you needed to silence a gunshot, mm-hmm. and figured it out. Mm. I think it has something to do with the screen door. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> what? 
I don't know. For some reason, my thought was, oh, I think it involves a screen from a screen door. But I'm probably I feel like wrong, I've heard that I... before, too. I bet that's a way that you can do it. It's oh, crazy. I know there's other stuff that goes into it, but I think that a podcast I've listened to explained how somebody made a homemade silencer, which isn't something that I'm going to do for you today. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to tell our listeners how to make a silencer <laughs> and then be um, responsible for a murder. Anyway, speaking of murder, I'm just kidding. Speaking <laughs> of murder. Can you imagine if that's how I went into things, though? Yeah, I could. You just did it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if that was. Yeah, you know, I, I, I could go into things like that. No. Oh, speaking of groceries, do you know what Jeffrey Dahmer had in his face? Oh, my God. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> On that fateful night in June 2011, Israel Keys decided to take a walk from his hotel, now armed with his cache of weapons that he had unearthed. In his own words, Keys explained, quote, I decided I was going to look for a house with a couple in it. I was looking for a fairly easy way to get into the garage, and theirs was the first house I found that had all of those things. So he just went for a walk. Again, opportunity. Mm-hmm. They were in the wrong place. They bought the wrong house, I guess. That's the scary part is they didn't even go to a place. Yeah. They were just own. home. Yeah. As soon as he found his target, Keyes instigated what he called a, quote, blitz attack. In the early morning hours of June 9th, 2011, Keys cut their phone line and removed a window fan to enter the garage. He then grabbed a crowbar and smashed a window into the house, wearing a headlamp on his head to navigate through the dark house. Then he rushed into the bedroom and quickly restrained Bill and Lorraine Courier before forcing them into their own Saturn. Keyes then drove them both to an abandoned farmhouse that he had scoped out earlier and attacked the couple. He went for Lorraine first in the upstairs bedroom of the farmhouse, but Bill wasn't going to go down without a fight. Bill was downstairs yelling for his wife and eventually managed to break free from his restraints. So Keyes had to return downstairs to restrain him again, but instead, a struggle ensued. In an audio interview, Keyes said, quote, So I knew I was going to have to knock him out or just kill him. He saw the gun, and he started to say something, and it just pissed me off, and I just started pulling the trigger. The FBI believes that this is when Keyes employed his homemade silencer. Keyes then strangled Lorraine and left the couple's bodies in the basement of the abandoned farmhouse. It's it's crazy how he's so calculated, but also so random at the same time. Yeah, that's what makes the puzzle is it's all so well planned out and there's such a strategy to everything. But it happens at the most random mm -hmm. of times whenever he feels like it to any random yeah. person. No one ever discovered their bodies because not long after the murders, the house was demolished and the remains were taken to a landfill. The FBI spent 10 to 12 weeks searching through the landfill, but unfortunately, they were unable to recover the bodies of Bill and Lorraine Courier. However, Keyes had made another mistake at this crime scene and left his fingerprint on an ammunition case. So they did find evidence that he was telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Huh. Meanwhile, Special Agent Catherine Nelson was digging into every aspect of Keyes' life, including cell phone records, travel records, and anything about his background. Nelson discovered that Keyes had definitely traveled to Washington, California, Wyoming, Texas, and Vermont. And we know New York because he also buried a kill cache, or what I like to call murder bucket, in New York. Mm. But were those the only places he had been? Spoiler alert, no. Israel Keys traveled all over America and into some international countries. So we know because the FBI released new evidence, which if you haven't seen is really spooky, that insinuates that there were 11 victims. Israel Keys was very cagey on ever giving authorities a real number. He only ever told them less than 12. Which, knowing Israel Keys, means 11. Just in case you're sitting at home right now, worried out of your mind that there's still a murder bucket somewhere in the state that you live or in New York where we are because you're very concerned about us and you love us so much, you don't have to worry. Israel Keys died by suicide on December 2nd, 2012. He cut his left wrist and hung himself with the bedsheets in his cell. 
the suicide note that he left didn't give any clues to any any more clues to any of his murders and instead consisted of an ode to murder an ode to murder what does that mean i don't know probably some kind of poem where he wrote about how much he loves murdering oh great (laughs) i don't know his cell also contained what the fbi just released which is what you'll find if you Google Israel Keys right now, which is 11 hand-drawn skulls drawn in his blood and a satanic symbol. So to me, 12. Not 12 victims. I believe the satanic symbol is is him symbolizing himself. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But if you want to hear more on our theories which I have a lot of, um, you can listen to us talk about him on Patreon in our new series, Unlocking Israel Keys. Yes. As you're listening to this, we have our second episode up. So if you want to hear about where Israel Keys went and all of his travel logs and the other clues that he gave us and just a general background on what the series is actually going to uncover and dive into. And possibly theories. Yes, go to our Patreon. We'll link it in our show notes. It's on It's on our website also. There's a button that says become mm-hmm. a patron, but we'll also just link our, pa- our Patreon. I'm so excited to share my theories with you because Tierney was so excited when she told me about the break in the case and she shared Ashley Flowers' theory with me and I immediately obliterated it and I felt so bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't feel it in my voice, I've been waiting to talk about keys for so long. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I put it off, but suddenly the perfect opportunity presented itself. And exactly. Here you go, guys. It's the modern American murder mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Unlocking Israel keys. Copyright. Unlocking. Yeah. Unlocking Israel keys. Trademark. TM. TM. (laughs) Maybe we'll have some unlocking Israel keys merch in the future. Yeah. You can get your own key. That just has some kind of alcoholic drink in it. That's not a terrible idea. (laughs) That's not a terrible idea. The key unlocks a liquor cabinet somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere. You just have to run into people's houses trying to unlock their liquor cabinet. (laughs) Each cabinet is in a state where we believe one of Israel Keys is (laughs) murdered. So I have a theory about Ted Bundy, who we might cover, but probably not because he's been done to death. (laughs) He's dead. But... (laughs) Yeah, But my theory with his last crime spree at the sorority house in Florida is that he, somewhere in his brain, knew that he wasn't going to stop on his own. So he went to a state that would kill him. Mm. My theory is with this last crime, which is the only crime that Israel Keys committed in the state that he lived, is that he knew that he wasn't going to stop. And he made so many mistakes with this one. This murder is bigger than any other murder. Every other murder was a murder. This one, he did a lot more with. And it might have been he was getting cocky, or but he didn't need money. He didn't need any of that stuff. It feels more like the end. Yeah. And we have other theories that will kind of support that theory as we go along. That's a good one. Thanks. I'm pretty excited about Israel Keys. And if you want to hear a ton of my theories, they're all super good, just like that one. Yeah, they are. They're all <laughs> really good. I said a lot to Tierney the other night when we stayed up all night talking about Israel Keys. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and every time I threw out a theory, Tierney was like, whoa. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So. so, yeah. If you want to read more about this and probably my own theories, I don't know how long the blog post will be, but... I'll write, I'll write my theories and try not to give anything away from <laughs> our upcoming episodes. And then you can dive into the sources yourself. You can dive into what the FBI has put out, which is an entire photo gallery mm-hmm. of potential victims, the actual kill cache. If you want to, we'll probably put some video, um, some pictures of the kill cache and pictures of the security camera footage on our Instagram. I don't know if we'll share the infamous photo, uh, but if you want to see it, you can find it. Um, 
Yes. You know the one that I'm talking about. Yeah. So <laughs> that will not be on uh, our Instagram, but it is on the Google. But you can find all of the safe stuff we're going to put out on our website at deaddrunkpodcast.com. Or on our Instagram where you can find the drink, which is not hard. We'll pro- it'll probably just be a video of me or Tierney getting drunk. So yes. <laughs> that one will be on our Instagram at deaddrunkcrime. We don't tweet a lot, but maybe we'll start now. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter. <laughs> Dead Drunk Crime on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Our page is... Dead Drunk, a true crime podcast. And, oh, and if you want to tell us your specific theories on Israel Keys, just given what I've given you, or maybe you've watched the 48 hours. I don't know if it's come out yet. But you can send us our your theories or send us things you might know about it that I didn't touch on today. I love new information. You Same. can send that to our email at deaddrunkpod at gmail.com. Woo! Yay. That's our first segment of Unlocking Israel, Israel Keys. Keys. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> and yeah, again, our second episode is up now, so go to our Patreon and subscribe and you will get that new episode right away. I'll... Also, be sure to shout out anybody that does join us on Patreon because I'm just going to be so excited that you do want to support us and you do want to join us on this crazy murder mystery venture that I'll shout out your name and I'll give you, I don't know, I'll give you a fun fact. Oh, nice. Love that. You get a Shelby fact for every Patreon. Yeah. I don't know what it'll be, Every but I know a lot of random stuff and and soon (laughs) you will too. (laughs) speaking of random stuff our chaser for today um is kind of a playoff of sam koenig's dream job of being a barista as well as israel keys's beverage of choice the americano it is called what is your starbucks order and it's a quiz from brainfall.com so i'm going to ask shelby 10 questions and we are going to decide what her starbucks order should be that's cool. I don't wait before we start. What is an Americano? Because I didn't look. Into it. I think an Americano is just like espresso and like hot water. Gross. That does sound gross. Yeah, it's just like watered down espresso. Mm. Okay. So describe your relationship with coffee. I love everything about it. Taste, smell, color. It's okay, I guess. I'm more of an espresso person or I can't stand it. Um, It's okay, I guess. Okay. I don't super enjoy the taste of regular coffee. You know what? Coffee is delicious, though. Yeah. Fruit of the bean. (laughs) Not sponsored. I mean, previous episodes have been sponsored by them. Not this one, but we love them. How are you most likely to spend a Saturday morning? Sleeping in, reading the paper, or getting some exercise? Um, I'm definitely awake and drinking coffee because we wake up at an ungodly hour. But I'm not doing any of those things. So sleeping in. I'm awake, (laughs) but I'm in bed. (laughs) Okay. All right. Next question is loading. How important is caffeine to you? At this point, my blood is about 40% caffeine. I need it through the day every day. It's nice to have on those extra rough days or I try to avoid it. Um... I guess the second one. I don't really need it throughout the day, but I do feel like I need it every single day. Okay. Yes. I agree. If I don't, I I never noticed how much I needed it until one day I didn't have it. And I was like, oh, shit. I really <laughs> enjoy coffee in the morning with my breakfast. And then mm-hmm. if I need another caffeine lift, tea in the afternoon. Mm. Like a true Brit. <laughs> How often do you visit Starbucks? Once or twice a week, a couple times a month, almost never daily. Almost never. I'm a Dunkin' person. Yes, DD. Yeah, mostly like because Starbucks. their coffee costs like half of what Starbucks is cost. That's true. I like Starbucks, but I have a coffee maker at home. So. What is your favorite sweet treat? Muffin, scone, or biscotti? Chocolate? Donuts or cookies? Fresh fruit? Mm, muffin scone or biscotti mm. i really like scones and i laughed at this line on brooklyn 99 where the chief says there's nothing better than a plain scone but plain scones are the shit 
Homemade plain scones. Amazing. Really? Oh, yeah. John makes the best scones. Oh, nice. I've had mm. them with like jam in England. Yeah. John makes really good ones. I like the orange scones from Panera. Those are like delicious. Ooh, I'll have to try yeah, though. Panera They're probably really makes really dope scones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which of the following customizations are you most likely to order? An extra shot of espresso, no whipped cream, extra sauce like caramel or chocolate, or it's perfect the way it is. Extra sauce. Oh, extra sauce. Getting saucy over here. I usually never say no whipped cream. Like if there's whipped cream on it, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> when you order at the counter, do you leave a tip? If I have some extra change, always. Only if I order something complicated, no way they're just doing their job. Yeah. No, always. always. Yeah. After working at Duncan for so long, I feel really bad if I don't have any cash to give them because. I know. I usually try to leave cash. I mean, usually it's only a dollar or two, but. Mm-hmm. And if I can't, I leave something on the card, but I hate doing that because I know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you look forward to the seasonal drinks, pumpkin spice latte, peppermint mocha, etc.? It's my favorite time of year. Every once in a while, I didn't know they have a seasonal menu. Overrated. Overrated. Mmm, hot tank. I don't really enjoy um, peppermint in mm. drinks or most things. <laughs> I love pumpkin spice coffee. I thought it was okay. Do you make your own coffee at home? Only yep. if I'm entertaining. <laughs> Only fresh pre- French press. Nope, it doesn't taste as good if made at home. What about just like yes? What was the yes answer? There wasn't one. Only if I'm entertaining. Only French press. Or nope, it doesn't taste as good. Huh. You could say only French press because Katie did give me give me this cute little French press for my birthday. Oh, yeah. And I use it when I just need one cup for me because mm-hmm. we have a pot. Yeah. And it's so cute and it works so good. Yeah. Love I have it. a French press too, but I have like the one cup Keurig and I just use that for myself. That's perfect. All right. Last question. What do you look for in a Starbucks? <laughs> good coffee, friendly baristas, a convenient location or a drive through? For sure. A drive through. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Although I'm sure Sam Koenig was a friendly barista. No, I'm sure that. Most of them are friendly baristas, but I just do the not. The Starbucks near me, they are so friendly. Like, almost overly friendly. <laughs> I have to take a survey to see my result. What? Um, What's the survey? <laughs> your your age and gender. It only says male or female. Um, Excuse me. Put 100 oh. years old, male. <laughs> wow, I'm not 18 to 24 anymore. I'm now 25 to 34, which seems just much older i forgot how old i am i am the other day i just completely forgot the number really yeah <laughs> i'm, I, I'm to pretty excited for it to be 30 at some point so i could just say 30 like you're, <laughs> you're excited to be 30 yeah i don't care are you saying that to make john feel better about turning 30 no john's never gonna feel better about being 30 <laughs> which he's not until october <laughs> All right. Um, it's it's taking a while to process. You must be a very complicated person. <laughs> Ooh, your Starbucks order is Germal, please. A tall iced coffee with milk. That order sucks. <laughs> yeah, it a hundred percent sucks. And that's not it. I order a caramel <laughs> frappuccino. Or it sucks a caramel and they're latte. Also wrong. Well, um, now you have to get a nice coffee with me. <laughs> no, what am I, Sean? No, <laughs> Sean. <laughs> Sean gets iced coffee though year round. It's I it's like his thing. Co- I mean, I drink hot coffee at home, but if I go out, I always get iced coffee. I try it, and it just it doesn't it, it doesn't, doesn't taste. The, I mean, I like it in the summer. Like if I'm going to Arf and I'm going by Dunkin'. Mm-hmm. I'll get a nice coffee because it'll last the whole time that I'm there. But if I'm going to drink the whole thing while it's hot, you know. Yeah. I, I just get nervous when with hot coffee sometimes because like I have to wait until a certain a certain temperature to start drinking it. And then it's like a race. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. I usually get leave when they give you that little the thing that closes at the top, the little closey lid. 
mm-hmm. I leave it open in the car <laughs> yeah. for a period of time and then I can drink it. Yeah, I used to when I had my commute to work, I would get my coffee and then I would drive from like the Highland Duncan to the thruway and I knew that when I went through the toll at the thruway that it was safe to drink. That's good. Yeah. That's a nice way to do it. It was fun. TBT. I've also, if I'm sitting down with a cup of coffee, I'll just take the lid right off. Mm-hmm. Let it cool. I like doing it at home because if it gets too cold, I have a microwave. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I frequently microwave my coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. every time I put it in, I'm like, do you think it's going to taste like taquitos? No. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, it does not. My microwave smells like taquitos, though. I got Nicole one time this thing that you plug into your USB of your computer, and it's like a warming plate for your coffee, and it keeps it the same temperature. That's so cute. Yeah. It looked like a donut, too. <laughs> Good times. What What should I say to sign off? Because my mom doesn't listen. Oh. Janice. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. Bye, mom. Just bye, say Janice. bye to one specific person. <laughs> My mom doesn't Ooh, listen either. You know what would be funny? If I just pick a different person every time. <laughs> I mean, my mom doesn't listen either, but I always say bye, mom. Just in, <laughs> oh, then we can just say bye, just mom, in but case, no, no moms are listening. Just in case she is listening. She listened to one and she was like, oh, you said bye, mom. Do you say that all the time? I'm like, yes. <laughs> She's like, oh. Oh, that's so sweet. No, my mom doesn't talk That is that. sweet. You can keep saying it and I'll just pick different people every episode. Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> Yeah. All right. Bye, Mom. Bye, Janice. <laughs>